News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are now into day four of the port strike here in British Columbia, and honestly, it doesn't really look that good. The BC Maritime Employers Association has issued a statement saying they don't think bargaining is going to get them an agreement. They say the union has entrenched its position, and unless that changes, well, they're not very hopeful. The union, of course, not buying that approach. But in other words, it just means no progress. Now, this is a strike where the impact will be and is being felt right across the country, but in particular in those B.C. communities that are heavily port dependent, like Prince Rupert. The mayor of Prince Rupert is Mayor Herb Pond and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So when you hear that latest update between the two sides, how do you feel? Uh, It's not encouraging, Um, but, you know, it... This is sort of the rhythm, too, isn't it, of, of negotiations. And so hopefully, hopefully behind the scenes, things are moving better than what people are talking publicly. How important is the port in Prince Rupert? Oh, it's uh, it's hard to even put into into a context that others can understand. Uh, you know, in, in a large urban center like Vancouver, which is Canada's largest port, uh, most people probably would not even know a longshore worker. Uh, in Prince Rupert, everybody knows longshore workers. Uh, their kids are in every single classroom, every sports team. Uh, you know, it, it, whatever whatever church you attend, whatever you do socially, uh, if you go to a neighborhood barbecue, for sure, you're with uh, longshore workers uh, sprinkled in there. It's, it, it's woven right into the very fabric of our community. So then when you have a situation like this, when they are on strike, tell me about the kind of impact that's having. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's at this point in time, it's it's more at an awareness level. We, we, those, unfortunately, those workers for the last few months, uh, at least those that are on the casual boards have not worked a lot just because of ongoing supply chain disruptions uh but uh and so having them out on strike just adds to that uh but there's concern there's no question there's concern in the community for all of these families how i know that recently there was a port expansion that has been approved for prince rupert how much has that been growing in recent years Oh, we we are i i'm i'm told and i suppose it depends on how you measure it but we we are canada's fastest growing or or at least close to the fastest growing port. Uh, we, we are at number three, uh, pr- probably going to eclipse number two, which is Montreal. Uh, and, and to give you just some size of, of the balance of the community to the port, you know, Vancouver's number one, but it's hosted in a, in a metropolis of 2.4 million people. Montreal's number two, 4.6 million people. And we're number three, and we're 12,000, right? That's amazing. <laughs> so, it, it, yeah, exactly. It, it, it is uh, literally what uh, turned Prince Rupert around when the pulp mill closed, uh, when the fishing industry declined back in the early 2000s. Uh, it, it was the pulp, or, or the container terminal in specific, but all the terminals, and, and, and honestly, it was the, those men and women uh, of the Longshore Union that uh, that went to work and made those ports so successful that that Prince Rupert's doing what it's doing today. Well, are you concerned then about this being prolonged? 
Oh yeah, of course. Uh, you know that in in a perfect world, everybody would be able to find a way through this, and and I'm sure they will. Uh, the issues are big. Uh, you know, people can talk about money, but money is often uh, an excuse for a lot of other things. I, I certainly, when I talk to local workers, one of one of the key issues for them is the automation and the potential loss of jobs and how how that would be managed. Right. So you've seen the port expand there. Would you say like Prince Rupert's never been busier when it comes to the port? Uh, when it comes to the port, absolutely. Uh, you know, um, our, our entire economy transitioned from being one that was largely built around a booming coastal economy of logging and fishing and mining and being a supply center for all of that uh, into uh, what was, in fact, the original dream, which was uh, this this dream of Charles Hayes of, of uh, a trade corridor coming out through Prince Rupert, we're you know we're a day and a half or better closer to Asia. We are the most uncongested rail link into the heart of Canada and into the heart of North America. And um, you know, if you look at a map, it all starts, or rather, if you look at a globe and pull a string across the globe, you'll see, you know, whether if somebody wants to move goods from Memphis, Tennessee, and and they do <laughs> to Asia or back. We're we're the we're the route, right? And uh, so so we are just uh, we're becoming a major economic artery in Canada's economy. Okay, well then, how long, Mayor Pond, do you think this can go on for before Prince Rupert starts to feel the pain? Oh, I'm I'm sure I'm sure we're uh, if you talk to uh, store owners and and business owners in town, they're probably feeling it now because just with the looming uh, issue of a strike, people. T- pull in their spending, mm-hmm. right? And and so, uh, you know, it, it's it, the, the effects are probably being felt right now. Um, but, uh, w- you know, we, we, we're resilient people. We've gone through uh, worse, far worse than this before. And uh, we'll stand with our friends and neighbors who are on those picket lines and, and uh, we'll be there to celebrate them with them when they get a contract. All right, Mayor Pond, thank you very much for your time. You're quite welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in on this Tuesday morning with our Scott Schatz, who is back with us. Hello, Scott. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am excellent. Thank you. Did you have a wonderful long weekend? Yeah, it was great. I uh, went to a family sort of gathering reunion type of thing in Calgary, saw a lot of uh, friends and people that I hadn't seen in years and years and years, and it was really, it was really awesome. Okay. Did you have fireworks for Canada Day? Uh, We did not have fireworks for Canada Day. This was in Alberta, and there's a lot of concern about uh, wildfires and forest fires and stuff there. So no fireworks and also no outdoor bonfire, which we had initially planned to do. Scrap that because of the forest fire concern. Uh, and a lot of people are kind of going this way with the scrapping the fireworks. We know we didn't have uh, a Canada Day fireworks here in Vancouver for the second year in a row. Uh, you may remember that the port said we're going to cancel this, and it's canceled indefinitely. This is the second year in a row because last year they said they're canceling it due to uh, various circumstances, cost, safety concerns, all that type of stuff. I just feel like in general the theme is to move away from fireworks. Yeah, it, it does feel a bit like that. And uh, Mayor Ken Sim has said he's like committed to trying to get something something back. And it turns out that what a lot of people are like throwing up as a potential option is one of these uh, coordinated drone light shows. 
Now, I have seen videos of these. I think they look amazing. Like, why not try something different? Oh, absolutely. Lots and lots and lots of places are doing them. Uh, lots of cities have started doing them. There's a huge growth uh, in companies that are providing this. Uh, like, Disney Disney World does them. Like, it, it, it's really a growing industry. And uh, number one, it doesn't pollute as much. Number two, there's no sound pollution. So all the animal lovers, myself one of them, uh, love that, you know, there's no explosion cause sound in the, you know, like you're not going to be causing distress to anything with a drone, you know, fire, I, I would assume totally as, until somebody tells me that, no, here's the problem with the drone show. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't think that there's going to be, I think part of the, the issue with it for one people think is cost. I think it's a little bit more upfront. I did a little bit of research into this, the cost to put on like a big drone show, depending obviously on size and scale could be between like 500,000 all the way up to a million dollars, depending on obviously size and scale and length of the show. But for example, a fireworks show, like when we would have the celebration of light uh, here in Vancouver, the cost of that is $800,000. So it's not too far off. You know, it's not too far off. It's like, it feels like it's something that is manageable. And, and I, I think the pushback on it is it just doesn't feel traditional. There's something about fireworks. They go bang. I don't know. People just seem to like that. You just made a good point, though, is that we do get our fill of fireworks in the summertime. We do have the celebration of light. So then why not do plan for something different on Canada Day? I, I totally agree. I think it's a reason for people to gather and to celebrate. It's a wonderful thing to celebrate this awesome country. And it's a way to to have these. And it's pretty amazing the things they can do as well. You know, like we talk about having seen them on YouTube and stuff. They can write all sorts of messages. They can create uh, pictures up there. You know, if a, if a very wealthy company that worked here in Vancouver, wanted to sponsor it. They could probably put a logo in the sky using drones. We've and that seen wouldn't companies be a problem. We that. can accept that, right? Sure. Yeah. If they wanted to like foot some of the bill for that, I think that's okay. But here's the problem, Scott. This is, the, this is the reason why people refer to Vancouver as no fun city, right? Is that do we not think outside the box enough? Do we, We're not innovating because we've already seen these shows in a lot of other cities. Yeah, absolutely. And when we finally do decide to do something, there'll be, a, you know, a consultation and, uh, you know, oh, a Scott, review of the consultation. You. <laughs> uh, you know, well, I mean, it, it is true. It is true. And a lot of people are really sort of asking the question here of like, okay, like, like let's get on this. Let's do it. Instead we like of just, things you know, provided they don't get too big and too out of control. Yes. Like yes. as a kid, I remember things like, remember we used to do Seafair, remember that was a big thing sure. until it got too big, yep. and then we could. And in, in White Rock, I grew up in South Surrey, so the White Rock Sandcastle competition yes. was huge until it got too big, yeah. right? Until traffic would get backed up all along 152nd there, and then they decided this is out of control. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah, and I really, I think that like, I hate that people use those as reasons to not to not have a good time. And I know that there's a cost anytime you do one of these things. Some people are going to be inconvenienced, um, pets, like flight patterns, whatever. But it's fun and it's good for it's good for the city and it's good for the people. And it's like, it's one day a year, you know? Okay, there you go. Like, do you, do you back Scott on this or do you think, no, no, we don't, we can do without the big show. I mean, Canada Day was still very enjoyable for people. Oh, certainly. Do we need to have a big show? Yes. Okay, <laughs> to, me, yes. to me, it's cut and dry. Yes, we do. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. 
Good morning, Simi. All right, let's start with the port strike situation because this does have an outsized impact on BC, doesn't it? Yeah, it has an outsized impact on the whole country because uh, an awful lot of stuff that comes and goes in Canada, whether we're talking our exports or all the stuff we import uh, goes through the ports in British Columbia. Uh, Good to hear uh, the mayor, Prince Rupert, on there reminding everybody just how important Prince Rupert is in the great scheme of things. Huge, right? Vancouver Metropolitan. Yeah, so it's huge. I mean, when you get a labor dispute and one side is saying, we've done all the bargaining we can, and the other side is saying, hey, you know, we need to get back to the table and bargain, uh, you can sort of say, well, let's let them work it out. But I don't think the country's economy or the provincial economy can afford to wait. Well, let's talk about the BC economy, because just yesterday we were discussing kind of jobs numbers, and they're kind of on the bubble here. What could this do? Yeah, I mean, you're right, Simi. The, The... The economy is already slowing. Job creation is slowing. Private sector job creation in some sectors of the economy is going backwards. And that, of course, adds to the problem because of the spillover effect on the whole national economy. Um, The other thing about, about a port strike is... I mean, we tend to think of it in terms of exports, but imports... There's a great book written a few years ago called 99% of Everything. A British reporter went and wrote around the world on container ships. And she pointed out that, you know, for most of the Western economies, Canada, UK, uh, United States, an awful lot of the stuff we buy comes to us in containers, in container ships. Uh, she was making the point that, you know, about globalization and how everything is linked together. But we'll start to see the effect uh, on imports as well fairly soon, because even the stuff we make here, some of it's made with stuff that comes in by container ships. I mean, remember when that con- those containers washed overshore, yeah. overboard, and, you know, people's refrigerators that they'd ordered and paid for started washing up on the beach, the west coast of Vancouver Island. I mean, this... This is a two-way pressure on the economy, and for that reason, I really think, you know, what's the national government waiting for? Uh, you, you look at these talks, the employer is saying, we've moved as much as we can, there's no point in bargaining. The union is saying, please, please, back to the table, bargain, there's still bargaining room, don't impose a settlement. I look at that dynamic. Any any time somebody wants binding arbitration, whichever side in a talk wants binding arbitration, which is what you're going to get if Parliament imposes a settlement, uh, any time somebody wants binding arbitration, it's because they think they can get a better deal from the arbitrator. And any time one side doesn't want it, it's because right. they think they have more leverage. So, you know, if if it were just these two parties, uh, you'd go, okay, well, you know, you work it out. Uh, it, you know, we're not going to do anything. But I think with the economy slowing nationally, uh, the national government, you're going, what are you waiting for? Um, there's been some assumption, Simi, that the national government, the liberals don't want to call back parliament to do this because the NDP siding with the union won't support back-to-work legislation. That's not really an obstacle. The conservatives, uh, I expect, would support back-to-work legislation, uh, would support stepping in. So the government doesn't lack the votes to get this through. They will anger their partners in power sharing, but 
you know, the liberals aren't particularly all that afraid of the NDP anyway, given the opinion polls suggest if the NDP forced an election, the NDP would suffer the loss of more seats than the liberals would. Right, but I, this will still take a couple of days. This is what I don't understand. Yeah. Like, yeah, even if they talk about tomorrow or the day after yeah. legislating back to work, it's days before you can get Parliament back up and running. Like, maybe people have to fly in. You're, you're right, Simi. And as I say, the... Uh, well, again, I, I heard uh, Herb Pond uh, of Prince Rupert say to you, uh, you ask anybody in Rupert who's in business there, and they're already feeling the yeah. effects. The, the, the just-in-time delivery system that is central to the global economy means um, even a, a disruption of a few days has a, a ripple effect right through the economy. There is stuff sitting in containers uh, and ready to ship to customers in Asia uh, through Rupert that are, you know, already ha- we're going to be heading there and they're already being diverted somewhere else to Los Angeles or one of the West Coast ports in the United States. We have more to talk about with Vaughn Palmer. So he is with us to talk about BC ferries. So switching from more of a national look to provincial here. Vaughn, why can't we get this right with BC oh. ferries? <laughs> You know, Simi, I thought I had heard all of the outrages about what went on in BC Ferries this weekend, and then I caught uh, Kylie Stanton's report on Global last night. So remember the advice that Ferries gave last week, which was there was going to be cancellations, and there were going to be service interruptions, and there was a ship being repaired. So what you should do is you should walk on. You should walk on the ferry. Never mind, you know, leave your belongings behind and just walk on, Right. But look what happened. <laughs> so the, the report pointed out two things. First of all, they started rationing walk-ons. So this couple arrive at the terminal, and they, they want to, they're going to walk on, and they say, ah, we're overloaded. Uh, we'll sell a ticket to one of you, but he's going to have to wait. And then the other one that's, I mean, I guess I knew this is what happens. You get to the terminal, and you park your car, and there's no parking spaces. The the parking lots are overflowed. So they told you to walk on and you know, leave your car behind, but you can't find a place to put your car. And, of course, if you're like me, you arrived at the ferry terminal at the last minute. So you jam your car in somewhere and you run. Like, there must be a fitness regimen in the world that involves running for a BC ferry. Isn't that, and, your, isn't that your fitness regimen? Isn't that? Yeah, and you get back <laughs> after your weekend on the island or your weekend on the mainland, and you got a parking ticket. $98. For parking, because you you parked in an illegal spot in the ferry terminal. So the 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 people who police parking at BC Ferries don't cut people slack because the ferry corporation told you to walk on and leave your car, and there were no parking spaces. They hand out tickets, so this thing has become a cash for. <laughs> source for BC Ferries, their advice that you should walk on is, I don't know how much money they're collecting uh, through their parking agent uh, in $98 parking tickets. Now, Vaughn, I remember on Friday when we talked, uh, Rob Fleming, the Transportation Minister, was going to have a presser and you see, you know, pretty much they were going to talk about BC Ferries. What happened with that? It's unacceptable what's going on on BC Ferries. It is unacceptable, although I must say the government seems to be doing a fairly good job of accepting it since they've been government for six years. But no, it's unacceptable and we're not going to put up with this any longer. By gosh, uh, the Premier said that too. 
Well, I mean, you look at the progress on this and where we stand. So a year ago, the New Democrats took total political control of BC Ferries. The Liberals had it out there to some degree at arm's length. They subsidized the service. They left the management to an arm's length board. The government changed the legislation, took back control of the ferries, appointed an NDP cabinet minister as chair of the board. She went in and fired out the, fired the CEO for a million and a half dollars in severance. And John Horgan said, people are going to say, what took you so long? So at the time, political observers, me, others, pointed out that if you're going to do that, you're also going to take political ownership of everything on the ferries that goes sideways or wrong or needs attention. And here we are today. New Democrats are saying it's unacceptable. They created this situation of political control, and it's not going as quickly as their own rhetoric a year ago suggested. And when you hear the excuse-making, Simi, um, it's going to take a while. There's staff shortages, recruitment challenges. Um, I was struck by the reason for the service interruptions on the weekend is there's a ship being refitted and it's taking longer than expected and they couldn't expedite the work because the shipyards are overwhelmed. Yeah, uh, that's what Nicholas Jimenez told us, uh, you yeah. know, that that's the reason why is that we don't have the capability here in BC to better quickly equip and, and yeah. repair these, these ships. Yeah, but remember in opposition, the NDP complained all the time that we should be building the ships here. And the reason given by the ferry corporation in those days was it would be more expensive and the yards here don't have the capacity to do it. So we we can build more ships for less money by building them offshore. And that's been the case. So if the NDP had actually stepped in and said, we're going to build all these new ships in British Columbia, they changed their minds when they saw the books and the challenges. Um, the problem would be worse, not better. I mean, yes, it would be wonderful if BC Yards could compete to build the ships, but they're having trouble competing to get the repair and upgrading work done on time and on budget. So I don't think that's in the future. So it's another area where... You know, the New Democrats had these solutions in opposition, and opposition parties have an easy time coming up with solutions because they don't have to implement them. Um, but I look at it now and I go, Premier, the minister are saying people are going to have to be patient while we meet these challenges. How patient are people going to be? The next holiday weekend is what, a month away? Yeah, and that's the big one, right? Yep. BC Day is the big one. Yep. And I said this to uh, Nicholas Jimenez, too. I said, listen, is there not a, do you not say, hey, all hands on deck, like absolutely no time off for long weekends? Like, why can't they make those a priority? And if you're going to tell people to walk on, make sure they got a place to put their car. Okay. Although you back up the advice on that. Say, no, no, you, what you should do is take public transit. Well, uh, the bus service from the provincial capital region out to Swartz Bay is not as convenient as it might be. The government might want to talk to BC Transit about that, too. I mean, as I said, if you're going to take ownership of the management and operation of the ferries, then you're going to get blamed for everything that goes sideways because what else can you do? You fired the CEO of the somewhat arm's length old corporation. 
you took political ownership, and now you're reaping the downside of that politicization of the service. Exactly that. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. In the United States, it's July 4th today, fireworks, celebration, they're, you know, big patriotic celebration. But what also happens today is a phenomenon, I'm not going to call it a sport, but something that they do every, has become something that they do on July 4th, which still boggles my mind. And that is competitive eating. Our contributor, Scott Chance, is back with us now. Does it not also boggle your mind, Scott? Well, it does a bit, but I've actually, like, grown to accept it, Simi, because I think, like, you know, find your people, and that's what these people are doing. They've created this thing, and it's actually growing really, really rapidly. Uh, Case in point, we're talking about it, and I would like to say that the people at Major League Eating would disagree with you about it being a sport. How is it a sport? Well, it takes athletics. It takes training. You have to really be in a specific shape. The people who do it are are elite at what they do. You know, <laughs> they, they set aside a period of time to, to train and to uh, develop a technique, and then they apply that technique competitively against other people who have done the same thing to find out who's the best. Now, if you're talking about the two people that I think of when it comes to competitating, which is what Takara Kobayashi and yep. Joey Chestnut, I would I would say that, okay, they are elite at what they do. Does that mean they are athletes? Anybody who consumes 50 hot dogs in 12 minutes, which is what the record was 20 years ago, I know they have since surpassed it, um, that can't be healthy. No, and there are some questions around that. But uh, let, first of all, let's just take a listen because you mentioned Joey Chestnut. He is the number one ranked competitive eater in the world. And just to give you an idea of kind of what he does uh, to prepare, here is a clip of Joey talking about his uh, training and technique that he goes through to get ready for a competitive eating challenge. My train starts about the end of April, around nine weeks before the contest. A lot of it's psychological and mental. Your body tells you you're full, and being able to ignore that feeling of full, that that makes it easier to train. Most of the top eaters use a pretty similar technique. We uh, all pretty much separate the meat from the bun. If you gotta eat them fast, you have to dip the bun in in water. The most important thing is, with your technique, you have to be able to find a rhythm, and be able to do the same thing over and over again. I had to learn to not go out as fast as I could. You tire out certain muscles and you're exhausted. I pick a pace that I can maintain for quite a while. A new world record, Joey Chester! Okay, there's so much to break down there. But <laughs> if your brain is telling you you're full, there's a reason why. Yes, uh, but oftentimes, uh, again, athletes, their bodies and their brains tell them you need to stop. What you're doing is is too intense. It's too much. And like he said, part of the thing is psychological, trying trying to push past that. Uh, and that and that's what they do. They do this. Joey Chestnut has developed this technique. He his record is 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. And other people have sort of mirrored his technique. And it's not just the hot dog thing. Joey Chestnut actually holds 81 world records for competitive eating. Things like chicken wings. Things like asparagus, pasta, Big Macs, you name it. He has won a competitive eating contest for it. Okay. So I have so many, I'm just so many health concerns for Joey Chestnut and anybody who competes at this, at this level. I mean, have you ever, have you done this? Like, have you ever tried? I, so to tell yeah. you, I, I once covered when Nathan's Famous came to the PE, sure. we're talking 20 
plus years ago, and they held a hot dog eating contest. This would have been the very late 1990s. So my cameraman and I went down there, and uh, he decided that he, he figured he could do this. So we thought, well, let's try it. So then on the way back, we hit a hot dog place. Okay. And I said, let's see how many. I think he ate four. Yeah. And he was like, I don't know how they how they do it. Then he felt gross for the rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is, um, I think that's how we think about it. I think we think about, okay, I'm going to eat a hot dog and I, I taste it, I chew it, I savor it. And then, you know, I, I swallow it, but these people, and I think this is why some of the health stuff is a bit of a mystery around it, Simi. It's because they, they eat and try to digest the hot dogs in a in a different way than we normally would. Like the way that Joey Chestnut was talking about his technique. They separate the bun from the hot dog. They dip the bun in water. Which is good because hot dogs are high in sodium, so yes. you need that hydration. Yes. But then, uh, for example, well, Joey Chestnut does this, and another competitive eater named uh, Mickey Sudo does this, where they will like put the hot dog in their mouth in one piece and put little bites I've seen that too. In, in the hot dog, but not, they won't bite them in, in like s- separate the, the hot dog into two pieces with the bite. The bites are there to make the hot dog more flexible so that they can swallow it whole. Okay, so it's crazy. The prep that they do before the bell starts or whatever is really something to behold when you watch this. So, I I'm curious as well about the science of this. What is this doing to their bodies? Yeah, and one of the things that a lot of doctors are saying is th- there's so few of them, and this phenomenon is so new that we're not totally sure what the long-term effects are, but you're right. They're not going to be good. They've theorized that Joey Chestnut has taken about one and a half years off of his life by eating over 19,000 hot dogs so far. 19,000 hot dogs. Yeah, but, you know, it definitely causes a lot of uh, stomach issues, as you can imagine. Other things that come up are, are arthritis of the jaw because they're using their jaw so much. So some of the competitive eaters are learning to work out their jaw. So there's definitely some concerns that they that they are uh, going through. But again, Simi, I say, <laughs> in other sports, we have concussions. We Scott's have broken ribs. Shake, shake my head. That's why we, he's trying to... Sh- <laughs> we have like hurt li- all sorts of things that have... Auto racing, that's a sport. People get terrible burns. All sorts of things happen. You know, it's it's the sacrifice that the sport demands. Okay, so I understand that you are passionate on this subject. I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by the the training that goes into it because I've been watching some stuff on this. I'm fascinated by the impact on their body on this. Like if these people don't have IBS or something when they get older, I would be astounded. Yeah. Like you, stretching your stomach and then having it reduced like that in the days after, that can't be good for your stomach. No, certainly not. I mean, there definitely is an element of that. They're good, Like you say, I'm sure that there are going to be long-term physical uh, implications for these guys. But, I mean, every time that Joey Chestnut has won one of these contests, it's worth $10,000. You know? Oh so he He's won 15 times. He must have so much money because he probably he makes appearance fees. Like, Sh- Sure, yeah. He's got a YouTube channel. That's America. It's yep. America. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, the men's competition, the one that he's taking part in, kicks off at 9.30 our time this morning. Will that be on ESPN, the Ocho? I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Dodgeball joke. Uh, thank you for you that. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi.
Now, we've been talking this morning about the BC port workers strike, the impacts of that. Now, we are now into day four. And what we've heard is that employers say they don't think it's possible to reach a deal through bargaining at the table. Now, we heard earlier from the mayor of Prince Rupert about the impact on that community, which is absolutely huge. As he put it, you know, a city of of 12,000 people like that, everybody knows someone or more than one person who works at the port or is impacted by this. And for the rest of Canada... Well, it's not going to take long before everyone starts to notice what is, isn't on the shelf at the store because of the port strike. For more on that, we're joined now by Greg Wilson, Director of Government Relations BC at the Retail Council of Canada. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Sim. Uh, what are you hearing from retailers about this? Well, at this point, mostly concern. Um, they're working hard. Supply Retail supply chain professionals are working very hard to reroute shipments to stores. And um, while we're confident in supply, um, that adds extra cost. What does it take to reroute shipments? Like, what do you do? You go down through the United States? So essentially, um, depends where you're, where in the supply chain your goods are. But let's say they're on a ship headed towards Vancouver. Um, if the next stop was Seattle for that container ship or San Francisco, you'd want to um, arrange to have the container unloaded there and to ship the container through um, you know, truck or rail from one of those ports. So that adds extra cost. In addition, that might involve extra time for the container on the ship. Um, so that would take, again, cost more. Um, all of these elements are costing retail retailers money. Is this something then that at some point retailers say, I can't afford to bring something in, I'm going to go without XYZ? Well, one of the difficulties is an amount of what we're talking about is already in you know, on its way. So there's not really much way of, there's not really a way of, of canceling an order that's already on its way. Um, essentially, what you're looking at is, you know, paying for storage if you cannot um, pay to ship it, at, if you can't make an arrangement to ship it at that point. So in any case, our concern is that this results in higher prices for consumers at the time everybody, including retailers, are very concerned about inflation. How soon do you think that could happen? Well, I don't think we're talking about days. I think we're talking about weeks. But one of the difficulties is that each day adds to a backlog. And we've seen from past port closures that backlogs take significant amounts of time to clear. Right. And if if prices are starting to go up, and isn't this also the time of year when retailers are thinking about and ordering what they're going to use and have for the holiday season? Well, indeed, it's already the time when, for example, things for the holiday season and for the back-to-school season are arriving at distribution centres. So, of course, they're concerned about that. And, of course, we all know, living on the Pacific Coast, that that a lot of the goods coming to the Port of Vancouver in containers are coming from Asia, and we can imagine what those goods are, and those would be the first ones impacted. So it's not going to be long, do you think, Greg, then before people start to notice this? It's a billion dollar a year, um, you know, a billion dollar a day, sorry, business. And that means that there will be impacts. Um, Certainly, initially, the impacts are greater for farmers and for people who have a um, container that is stuck at behind a picket line at the Port of Vancouver, the Port of Prince Rupert. But it's not long before we will all notice the impact. When you put it that way, Greg, a billion dollars a day, I mean, that's huge. It's, 
you know, a very large contributor, not only to British Columbia's economy, but also to the economy of the country. And, you know, for we think of this as something that only impacts the West Coast ports and perhaps Western and Central Canadian customers. But, you know, some retailers, you know, smaller retailers who operate a chain of stores across North America might be choosing to import all of their goods through the port of Vancouver, in which case they, you know, are stuck for all of their stores. So it's, you know, while the North American supply chain is highly integrated, you know, these um, disruptions can be highly impactful for particularly small and medium-sized businesses. So would you like to see the federal government step in here? We have asked that the federal government do more. Um, firstly, it's dis- it's really discouraging to hear um, yesterday afternoon that one of the parties um, doesn't feel there's room for a settlement. Um, our view is that the federal government sort of at this point has two roles. One is to recall parliament and the other one is to do whatever it takes to incent a settlement, knowing that any recall of parliament takes time. That's exactly what I was thinking too. Greg, thank you. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're going to talk about mosquitoes. This is definitely mosquito season. Uh, Some years worse than others. And I know there has been some concern about more mosquitoes this year. I'll tell you, if you're someone like me, though, it's even worse because I'm one of those people that mosquitoes just love. It just happened to me recently, actually, a couple of weekends ago with a group of people. But I was the only one who got bitten like four times. Mosquitoes just seem to really like me. It turns out that's not my imagination either. There are some people where that is the case, and we wanted to know why is that and how can I stop it from happening? Well, joining us now is Dr. Ben Matthews, who's a professor in the UBC Department of Zoology. Dr. Matthews, thank you for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Good morning. So I'm not imagining things, right? Mosquitoes do like certain people sometimes? Yeah, unfortunately, it, it's absolutely true. We we all have this experience in our family groups that there's one person who, who's going to get bitten all the time and the rest of us kind of get away scot-free. And it's partly to do with, with how you smell, not to, to put it too bluntly, but um, <laughs> they pick up on certain odors, you know, not necessarily the same ones we would find uh, uh, particularly smelly, but bacteria on your skin will, will convert uh, fluids in your body into certain odors and make you one of the... Uh, most tasty treats to the flying this year. I, I, I know that there's this, like something that they would think, oh, we just taste good. Like, is that it? Is there something about us that, no, that yeah, our blood so, tastes so, sweeter to them? What is it? Yeah, so they can't actually taste your blood until they've already bitten. So at that point, it, it's too late. So we really do think it's something about uh, how you smell at a distance. And um, the other thing is that some people react more strongly to mosquito bites. And it oh, sounds like you may be one of these unlucky folks. Yep. I get one of the well. I get welts, right? So as soon as I have a bite, it kind of I break out. Yeah, absolutely. And so some of your friends and and family may be getting bitten as well. They just may not notice it quite as strongly as you do. Okay. So what can I do about this, or what can people like me do about this? Yeah. Well, you can either make friends who are even tastier and smellier than than you are, (laughs) or the best the best that we have to date are mosquito repellents that include compounds like DEET and picardin. Um, or you can just wear long clothes. So um, if you don't leave any exposed skin, uh, then the mosquitoes won't have anything to bite. That's not really a lot of fun at this time of year. No. What what type of year is this for mosquitoes? Yeah, so it depends on the species of mosquitoes. There are, there are over 50 different types of species in BC, and they, they all have their own 
breeding sites and, and preferences. But to, to kind of boil it down, it really comes down to the weather. They need water to breed because the larvae and the pupae, the immature stages, are, are aquatic. And then they need hot weather, uh, similar to what we're having now, although it's actually not too bad right now, uh, to keep the adults happy um, so that they can be active and, and do their hunting during the day. So I'd say we're, we're probably having a pretty average year, but this would be the time of year that you would start to notice them for sure. Okay. Where you are. I've noticed also there's been some concerns in the United States about more mosquitoes. Uh, they actually had a case of malaria, I think, in Florida. That was the first time in, right. in 20 yeah. years. Is that a concern? Not so much in BC. So, so mosquito-borne disease we worry about here in BC are, are things like West Nile, and, and we tend to have very few cases every year. Um, to get malaria, dengue, yellow fever, Zika, any of the kind of the, the, the big mosquito-borne diseases, you need both a local reservoir of that disease within people, and then you also need the specific type of mosquito that can vector those diseases. And here in BC, we're lucky that we don't have any of those uh, species yet, although with climate change, we worry that, that they are coming on. So what purpose do mosquitoes serve? Why do we have them? Yeah, it's a question everybody loves to ask. Why, yeah. why can't we just get rid of them, get them <laughs> off the face of the planet? So among other things, they're, they're food for, for bigger insects, birds, bats, things like that. But they also, similar to bumblebees, they can be pollinators. So there are certain types of flowers, for example, that, that are very attractive to both male and female mosquitoes as they need to find sugar uh, in the flower's nectar to power their, their flight. And so they'll actually pick up pollen and then go visit another flower and pollinate it, similar to the bees. So there are probably unappreciated functions uh, for mosquitoes in our ecosystem besides just being annoying and uh, transmitting disease. That's true. You're right. There are some things about them that are definitely underappreciated. Is there a particular type that likes to bite more than others, or are they all the same when it comes to that? Yeah, they, they all have their own preferences, which is interesting. Some prefer birds, um, some prefer people, uh, and some will uh, feed on frogs and snakes and, and, and other amphibians. So I'd say they all... You know, all the ones that need to blood feed need, need to bite something, but it's not always the same type of animal. Um, and within the ones that bite humans, some of them prefer your feet. Some of them will prefer your arms. They all kind of have their own unique styles of uh, uh, hunting, if you will. Okay. And they, they look for their blood meal. And where are they most prevalent? Uh, where in the environment? Or, yeah. Or where, like... Yeah. Again, it depends, but, but there, you're going to need water nearby. You need standing water for the eggs, the larvae, and the pupae to... To develop, and then you need places for them to be able to hang out, and then a lot of times they will go to where their their meal is. So a lot of the ones that really prefer humans have adapted to live their entire lives uh, in and around human settlements. So as long as they have water and a place to, to hang out um, and people to bite, then then they're going to be happy. Okay, but what I'm hearing here, then, uh, Dr. Matthews, is that there's nothing I can do. There's just I, I, either I cover up, wear more yeah. insect repellent, but that's it. Yep, yep, no, that's, uh, uh, unfortunately, mosquitoes are, are going to be with us for a long time. Um, being dubious, uh, be, being diligent, rather, with your repellent, similar to, to what you would do with sunscreen, is, is really important, especially where there is mosquito-borne disease. Um, and otherwise, you can also avoid certain types of days. So if you notice that you're getting bitten mostly at dawn and dusk, which is when a lot of the species uh, around here will be most active, then you can avoid being outside during those particular times of day. I will do my best. Uh, thank you so much for that this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. And best of luck with the bites. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it is time for us to check in on our BC Lions. Coach Rick Campbell is with us this morning. Morning, Coach. 
Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. I know not the outcome you wanted there. 45-24 loss in Toronto. What happened? Yeah, too many mistakes. We had a lot of turnovers in the game and took too many penalties. And Toronto's a good team and they played well. So, you know, we have to play really well to beat them. And uh, we're, we're capable of it. We just didn't, uh, didn't get it done yesterday. All right. not, not panicking. I mean, you're still 3-1. and one. Yeah, exactly. I think it's uh, our total body of work. Our guys have done a really good job and have played well. And uh, I think it was a bad day at the office, but we have a short <laughs> week this week. Yeah, we had a short week this week. We play Sunday at home, which I know our guys are looking forward to getting back home. We played uh, three of our four games on the road. So it'll be good to get back out there on Sunday and uh, play better football and try to get a win. Does this work sometimes in terms of, of a reset, right? Just a bit of awakening to be like, hey, we have to remember to do the things that we are good at doing. Yeah, I think I think it can. You know, you, don't, you obviously don't ever want to lose, and uh, there's no, no fun in losing, but uh, they say don't, don't lose the lesson when you do lose. So um, if, it, if it's a little bit of fuel to refocus and re-energize, then uh, I'm all for it. Okay, and this is coming back home too. So you've got a home game against Montreal, the one you were talking about on Sunday there. Does that help to, like, to come home after that? Yeah, it does. We, it's a long trip to Toronto, and uh, like I said, we've played three of our four first games. Um, three of the four have been on the road. So we love playing at home. We play at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, and uh, it's always good to play in front of the home fans. Okay, so what did you see that you liked? What did the team still do well? Uh, we, we competed, which is important. We never got in a flow, and like I said, we were making a lot of mistakes, but we we battled all the way till the end. And uh, so I, I, I like our fight and our grit and our effort, but uh, we have to be, we definitely have to play better to in order to win games. Okay, what do we know about Montreal? Um, they're pretty good. We've, we've, we're kind of on a string of playing some really good teams. Um, they're 2-1, and one, and... Uh, they started the year well, and uh, it'll be a tough test, but uh, I know our guys are, are going to be itching to, to get back out there and play better football. Is this the most challenging time of the season, Coach? Like when the, you know, the initial kind of beginning of the season has worn off, and now it's time to settle into the rhythm? It is. It's, uh, we talk about that we're running a marathon, not a sprint, because we play 18 games, and um, you know we're only four into it. And we even talk about that after we win games, is that we can't get too high, and then we can't go in the dumps when we lose a game is um, the good teams always can bounce back and keep going so you know we're we'll take a deep breath and then uh, get back to work and uh, go try to beat these Montreal guys which I know you will so thanks very much for joining us this morning all right have a good morning this is mornings with Simi how important is freedom of information to you I mean, here in BC, we talk about it a lot. We say it's important, but it's very clear we could do a lot better. And when I say definitely mean the government that is in charge and we is in the public demanding that things should be different. But different how, you might ask. What is attainable? Well, when governments make excuses, we now have something to point to. The Globe and Mail newspaper has been digging into this issue. Their latest investigation shows it is possible for a government to positively deal with freedom of information because that is what they are doing in Newfoundland. Tom Cardoso joins us now, investigative journalist at the Globe and Mail, who was one of the reporters digging into this. Tom, thanks for being here. Thanks, Sammy. Nice to be here. Well, tell me about this investigation that you and, and Robin Doolittle did to look into freedom of information across the country. Right. So we've been uh, working for the last year and a half, uh, 20 months, on uh, an investigation we call Secret Canada. And Secret Canada is 
an examination of Canada's broken freedom of information systems at the federal, provincial, territorial, uh, and other levels of government, municipalities, we're looking at hospitals, police, all that kind of stuff. And uh, in our reporting, we've covered a lot of very interesting stuff. We've shown that there's a uh, definite, you know, culture of secrecy, for lack of a better term, uh, within public bodies that, you know, prioritize the over-redaction and delayed release of information uh, because of the perverse incentives that are built into the system. We've looked at things like, you know, uh, backlogs in Nova Scotia uh, at the appeals level. We've looked at the immigration system federally that has been hijacked uh, that sorry, the access information system federally that's been hijacked by the federal immigration system. And uh, today we have a story looking at uh, the one jurisdiction that is head and shoulders above the rest, which is Newfoundland and Labrador. And I read through this story and it was so impressive that Newfoundland and Labrador is doing this. What are they doing? Why is it so special? Yeah, Newfoundland's story is very interesting because they uh, weren't always a, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> an access information utopia, I guess, compared to the rest of Canada. Not to say that they're perfect by any means, but they're certainly doing much better than most other jurisdictions, at least on the law. Uh, A lot of this connects back to some complex political happenings in 2012 and 2014. The Coles Notes version is that uh, in 2012, the progressive conservative government of the day passed Bill 29, a bill that uh, significantly... uh, tightened their freedom of information laws in the province. And it became a bit of a political football. Uh, it was uh, this bill, this bill was seen as, you know, emblematic of government secrecy and mismanagement and paternalism. And it became a real albatross around the government's neck to the point that uh, the premier uh, eventually resigned and appointed an interim premier. And that interim premier announced a review of Bill 29 several years ahead of schedule and appointed this independent panel. At the end of the process, this panel wrote a draft bill and the progressive conservative government at the time, uh, you know, seeing that there was an election less than six uh, months out, uh, knowing that they were polling 20 to 30 points behind, (laughs) uh, you know, they took the law and they just passed it wholesale. No changes whatsoever, aside from, you know, a couple of small typo and tweak kind of things that were really, really minor. And as a result, Newfoundland now has this incredibly progressive, incredibly open law. And they've seen, they've, uh, you know, gotten to reap the benefits of that. The number of freedom information requests from, the, uh, from everyone, uh, not just media uh, and, you know, lawyers and whatever, but the public is up 430% wow. since uh, the law was passed in 2015. That's explosive growth. It's pretty significant. Fees are non-existent almost now. Uh, almost no request takes longer than 20 business days, and the appeals process is fast and efficient. So it really is a stark contrast to many other, well, every other Canadian jurisdiction, really. Tom, how do they do it then? Because every other jurisdiction, BC included, will complain it takes up too much of staff time. We have to have a processing fee in place. Like uh, everything that Newfoundland doesn't do, everybody else says they must do. You no, know, it's really odd. Uh, on the fees, you know, I know that that was a big fight in BC recently. Uh, the, what the committee said, this independent panel that was chaired by a former premier, a retired 30-year journalist, and a former federal privacy commissioner, what they said was, you know, the fees are uh, not really effective as a cost recovery mechanism. They don't really pay for the cost of doing this work. Really, the work of freedom of information is work that the government has to be doing anyway. This is part of the work of government, and this is what this committee said. Uh, you know, it's important to 
people understanding the uh, processing or the process by which the government operates, but also to inspire confidence in our democracy. So they didn't see a, a real benefit in trying to recover a lot of costs with fees. Uh, in terms of timelines, they reversed the, uh, they took away the public body's power to apply time extensions unilaterally, which is something that you can do in basically every other jurisdiction. Instead, every jurisdiction, every public body would now have to go to the appeals commission and ask for permission to take an extension. So that, you know, changed the incentive significantly because now they have to go and ask for permission. So it's just really easier to process these files within 20 business days uh, and save those extensions for when they really need them. I guess, Tom, what really strikes me in reading this is that it's possible, right? All the times we're told right. it's not yep. possible. It is possible. They're doing it. Mm-hmm. And well, and that was what really drew me to this story, too, was that, uh, you know, we, Robin and I have been writing a lot about, uh, my colleague Robin Doolittle and I have been writing a lot about, you know, broken access information, broken freedom information, you know, fees, delays, redactions, all this kind of stuff. But we also knew that we wanted to do a story about what works because, you know, let's be real, uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the news <laughs> at all times, even on the best of days. Uh, and this was a story that showed that it is possible to do this in Canada. There are ideas legislatively, po- policy-wise, regulatorily, <laughs> that can get you to a place where freedom of information is enshrined within the government, that it's something that the public service believes in, mm-hmm. the politicians begrudgingly believe in, and people use uh, very effectively. And that's what we're seeing in this land. Well, I hope every premier reads this. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Does your neighborhood have an unusual smell, something you just can't figure out? Maybe it is a good one. Maybe it's a bad one. Either way, if there's something about that, then UBC researchers actually want to hear from you. They're undergoing this project called Smell Vancouver. We're going to learn all about it right now because the lead analyst for the project is with us, Dr. Sahil Bandari. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, I mean, it's an, it's an honor to be here. Please, okay, Dr. Bandari, tell me, why do this? Why are you tracking smells in Vancouver? Um, yeah, um, absolutely. So um, the motivation for studying smells or odors came from the idea that it's a, it's a pretty understudied subject. And we all saw this when COVID hit and, you know, some of us lost that sense of smell and we did not know what to do because, you know, odors have just been that subject that has not been studied. Um, and in fact, what we now know is that some smells or odor-containing chemicals can actually be really harmful for our body. They can go deep inside our lungs, our bloodstream, and and cause multiple diseases. Um, We have a very good uh, quantitative air quality monitoring infrastructure, um, both in Vancouver and Canada, that monitors pollutants known as criteria air pollutants. And we've been doing this for a while um, to protect community health. However, odors are tricky to measure. We don't have a really good instrument that can measure a diverse variety of odors. And what that ends up uh, doing is that the state of the art when it comes to measuring odors is the human nose. Um, And so that brings us to the Smell Vancouver project where the idea was to tap into this ability of the human nose on a large scale. We have about uh, two and a half million people in Vancouver. And so if all of us collectively use our nose and share information together on what odors we experienced, what were the health effects, 
um, and then what actions we took on experiencing these odors, what causes do we think are causing these odors, then maybe we can sort of generate this collective information that can then be passed on to other scientists to conduct lab experiments, uh, to policymakers to take decisions. So that's sort of the motivation for the Snell Vancouver project. Wow. Okay. Ambitious. And so is there something that we can classify as like, is there something called smell pollution? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we've, uh, we've already been studying this in academic literature for a very long time. A large class of smell pollutants are volatile organic compounds. Uh, you'll hear more and more about this as our pollution levels from traffic drops Pollutions from these odor pollutants will become more and more important. Uh, a common example for these pollutants are volatile chemical products that we use in our day-to-day life. For example, deodorants or chemical cleaners at home or even paints that we use on our walls. All of them are constantly, they, they have that, that smell and that smell is actually chemicals that are going in inside the body and causing reactions and doing stuff. So um, as we clean our air, these pollutants are going to become more and more important. So what kind of odors are we talking about here, Dr. Madari, that you want to hear from people? Like people think, okay, my so my neighborhood smells. Why would they call you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the reason I think we want you to report a wide variety of odors is so we can share that information with policymakers so they can ultimately fix those issues. Um, historically, Vancouver has had issues with perennial odors. But um, what we've shown with that app is there are these emerging sources that people have become more and more concerned about. So some of the perennial sources that I'm sure you're aware of as well are landfills, uh, especially in Delta, um, uh, a large industrial presence in Burnaby, which we hear a lot about on our app. But then there's many emerging sources. Um, uh, just to give you a couple of examples, one is wildfires. So historically, wildfires have never been thought of as an odor pollutant, but people smell the smoke and, and it makes them a little worried, like, what am I smelling? Why, why am I smelling this in Vancouver? Um, another interesting source that's been coming up a lot in our reports is cannabis or cannabis cultivation facilities. So, you know, we have a lot of weed growing around in Vancouver in farms and people are concerned, like, is this smell bad for me? What health effects I, I may be experiencing? So um, we're actually getting a large variety of odors and we want people to report every um, odor that they feel is affecting them. It's you know, maybe maybe they're just concerned about the cause. Maybe they think there is a specific source that's causing these odors, or maybe they just think there's a health effect. Like every time that odor comes, they're experiencing hives. Um, and, and we do see that in our app, like people reporting that. So we want people to just share um, every odor that affects them in, in one way or the other. Okay, so what is the criteria then? Do they have to, do you want them to smell it regularly, every day, every mm-hmm. once in a while? Like what what is the criteria? So um, we, we actually protect our users' identity a lot in the app. So we are actually not tracking um, who's reporting. Um, I have actually gone through all the reports. And because we provide users the ability to express, we give them about 100 characters to describe these orders. Um, I can actually tell, oh, it's the same person. But there is actually no way for us to track if it's the same person or not. So users' identity is really protected. So you can report once. You can report multiple times. Um, the more information we get from a specific location, we start. We actually start to see patterns. Um, and we've done some statistical analysis to test this. For example, um, we've selected a specific order from a region um, at a given hour, um, and we sort of created that filter to see if our patterns change. 
Um, we now have two years of data. So we've compared analysis for 2021 with 2022, and our results have been remarkably consistent. So, um, you know, we've, we've been getting a really good amount of, uh, of data that, that's giving us some statistical confidence. But the more data we get, the more confident we will be. Um, and the, I think the more confident policymakers will be um, to take decisions based on this data as well. Okay, so is this for all over Vancouver, Metro Vancouver? What are we talking about? Yeah, it's all over. So um, I also want to uh, point out that this app is designed for the entire Metro Vancouver region. Um, and, you know, we analyze that data for Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby, Delta. Those are sort of the regions where we get most of our reports. But you would love to hear reports from Coquitlam, Surrey as well, where we haven't seen actually a lot of reports. And may maybe there's not a lot of other issues there. Um, but that, that surprises me. So would love to hear uh, from people in those regions. Um, another group that hasn't actually reported a lot to our app, and we would love to hear from them, is racialized and minority communities. Although they are now sort of a majority minority, so 55% of Vancouver's population um, is racialized uh, or minority communities, only about 16% of our users belong to those groups. So we would love to hear from those groups as well. We want more representation in our app. Um, and we, we hope we can be one of those uh, participatory science projects where we are able to achieve that diverse representation. Okay, so then how do people access this? You talked about the app there. How do we find it? How do we participate? Yeah, so, um, you know, we've been talking to Simi uh, and many other uh, media reps. So our links are available all online. If you just Google Smell Vancouver, you'll find our website. But we're also available as sort of an app on iOS, Android, and desktop. So you can download that and you can report things to us there as well. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think the most important thing I want to say is that I hope people um, feel that they matter, that, you know, we are here to listen to them. We are their voice and we're talking to policymakers um, at the city, at the provincial, as well as at the sort of the Metro Vancouver level to, to make sure these results become actionable. Um, I also want to add that if you're reporting to us, that report actually does not go to Metro Vancouver. So please separately report to Metro Vancouver as well. Espe especially if it's really intrusive, right? Exactly, exactly. Especially if it's really intrusive and you want action in real time. Because okay. this is sort of a research project. Um, the analysis that we do is probably going to take about six months to, to sort of t turn into something that we can present to policymakers. Right. So make sure to report at both, both sides. Okay, well, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, having me. This is Mornings with Simi. 